Good morning, friends. Please be seated. Every year at this time, we hear stories of the birth and early life of the infant Jesus. Angels come and go. Elizabeth and Mary, Zachariah and Joseph all have their moment as the stories unfold. Simeon and Anna prophesy. Shepherds and magi, heavenly choirs, and even the stars proclaim the incarnation of the Holy Child. And then, nothing more is told until Jesus reappears as a full-grown man at his own baptism, except for Luke's single account of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. There have been many attempts to account for the so-called lost years in the life of Jesus, with speculations about journeys to India, Egypt, or secret societies closer to home. The desire to understand the precocious child and his charismatic presence is all the more compelling because the foreshadowing and explicit testimony of the infancy narratives weren't enough to prepare even his parents for the person Jesus was becoming. I suppose the authors of the Gospels have their reasons for glossing over everything but the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. But if, as has been said, the child is father of the man, it seems that we should glean what we can from this brief episode, a single week in the life of Jesus as a boy passing into adolescence, when for the first time Jesus finally speaks for himself. It's plain enough that Jesus has been loved and nurtured by his parents, his community, and his traditions, and yet a new identity is emerging. He is perplexed that his family doesn't perceive it, and they are perplexed that he would cause them so much distress. When he speaks of being in my father's house, he has declared a profound filial relationship with God that set him apart from his peers while becoming the foundation of all that he was to teach and all that he was to reveal in the maturing days that followed. In this moment, however, it's not so much Jesus' holiness that is revealed as it is his humanity. He is acquiring the experiences, practices, and insights which will help him open to deeper revelations of his own nature as one created in the image of God. He is doing the hard, disciplined work of spiritual formation, necessary even for one with so many gifts of the Spirit. Consider the attributes ascribed to Jesus in his youth and whether or not we recognize them as central to the manner in which he taught and lived his life as an adult. Let us also ask ourselves what they may have to tell us about our own formation as followers of Jesus. Jesus is, first of all, both orthodox and diligent within the framework of his culture. He is respectful to the elders and fulfills all of the demands of the ritual law of Moses. In this sense, he simply conforms to what is expected, but how he does so 
begins to distinguish him from his companions. Jesus listens deeply. He hears more than is said. He hears the call of souls in doubt and confusion, in anguish and in hope. He recognizes pretense and hypocrisy. He listens for the still small voice within himself and knows that the same voice speaks to and for everyone. Jesus asks questions that the hidden heart can hear. He invites those who listen to examine their own values and motives. He helps them to recognize the limits of their vision and shows them a path into a new way of life. Jesus understands the ignorance and self-delusion that beset every traveler on the road from the earthly to the heavenly Jerusalem. He understands the joy and the trauma of the spirit and the burdens of the body. He knows who he is in the eyes of the creator and he would have everyone know the same for themselves. Above all, Jesus grows in wisdom. He discerns the spirit's movements in himself and in others. He draws upon the traditions of his time and place and makes them his own. He applies freely what he has learned with a view toward the awakening of souls to life in the spirit. And he uses poignant parables, aphorisms, and paradox to stimulate personal reflection. But where can we see this wisdom of Jesus at work in a way that helps in our own formation as followers of Jesus. Franciscan priest Father Richard Rohr has offered an insight that can help us by trying, he says, to interpret scripture the way Jesus did. Since the scriptures are the basis for what we know of Jesus and our intention is to follow his lead, Rohr suggests that we interpret scripture using the same principles that we see in Jesus who understood the law and the scriptures as a means to an end, not an end in themselves. He did not treat every word as of equal importance and inspiration. But, Rohr notes, he consistently ignored or even denied exclusionary, punitive, and triumphalistic texts in favor of passages that emphasized inclusion, mercy, and honesty. Jesus had a wider and deeper eye that knew which passages were creating a highway for God and which passages were merely cultural, self-serving, and legalistic additions. This was the characteristic which moved people to say Jesus taught with authority unlike the scribes and was the basis for his charge that they understood neither the scriptures nor the power of God. We can recognize these principles and the underlying wisdom at work again and again if we have an eye and an ear for it. For instance, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or, you have heard it said, but I tell you, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Judge not that ye be not judged. 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners because they suffered this way? Or a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. It is a grave responsibility to separate the wheat from the chaff that we may find in the scriptures or in the doctrines and practices that the churches have promoted on the basis of particular interpretations of biblical texts according to the traditions of men, <laughs> rather than that taught by Jesus, whom Paul considered the personification of the wisdom of God. It seems to me this has been the challenge the Episcopal Church has faced when full inclusion of women in the life of the church was dismissed as an innovation and contrary to tradition. It has been at the center of a rationale to exclude and condemn men and women from acceptance whose deep and abiding love is somehow deemed sinful. Our hope, as we have heard in today's epistle, is that a spirit of wisdom and revelation may come to us through Jesus and with the eyes of our heart enlightened, we may stand before God holy and blameless in love. The question, however, remains, what is the source of this wisdom which we find in Jesus and how can we make it our own? Certainly Jesus was steeped in the wisdom traditions of Israel as, is, as it is expressed in the book of Job, Proverbs, and the Psalms where we are told that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It may be that wisdom was among those things which Jesus first heard while he sat with the elders of the temple. But as Jesus increased in wisdom and in years, we come to understand wisdom as a gift of the Holy Spirit, which is more than knowledge or information or even truth. It is truth applied to the heart and the mind in such a living way that the lives of people are transformed, as we can see in his close disciples of every generation. This gift of the spirit of wisdom may come in many ways in contemplative prayer, compassionate service, in worship, in gratitude for our many blessings, and even in our suffering, just as from the cross, Jesus forgave those who knew not what they were doing. Many eyes of the heart were opened on that day. Thomas Kelly, a Quaker missionary educator and writer has left us the eloquent and powerful testament of devotion from which I quote at length. Deep within us all there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continuously return. Here is the slumbering Christ stirring to be awakened to become the soul we clothe in earthly form and action. And he is within us all. But the light fades, the will weakens, the humdrum returns. For we must learn the disciplines of his will and pass beyond this first lesson of his grace. Continuously renewed presence, not receding memory of the divine touch, lies at the base of religious living let us explore together the secret 
of a deeper devotion where the light within never fades. What is here urged are internal practices and habits of the mind, ways of conducting our inward life so that we are perpetually bowed in worship while we are also busy in the world of daily affairs. This practice is the heart of religion. It is the secret, I am persuaded, of the master of Galilee. He expected this secret to be freshly discovered in everyone who would be his followers. Now we know. Let us call it wisdom if we are changed by the knowing. Amen.